This morning I'm changing the text from the first seven verses or eight verses of uh, Roman or First Corinthians nine to the last few verses of eight because um, what we're dealing with we're going through the book of First Corinthians if you're visitors. That's what we've been doing for quite a while. And what you're dealing with here at this point in the book of Corinthians is in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul dealt with uh, requests that he'd received from the Corinthians for advice about marriage and singleness and sex in the marriage bed. And then in chapter 8, he responds to other questions the Corinthians had asked him about uh, specifically related to meat sacrifice to idols. And... um, Let's go ahead and read the last uh, four verses of chapter 8, and we'll limit our study this morning to those verses. Um, Let me tell you, though, when you go into chapter 9, what you have is the Apostle Paul saying at the end of 8, all right, if I'm going to hurt my my weaker brother, I'm never going to eat meat again if that's going to cause him to stumble. And then he looks at the people and he says, oh, you people, you're, you're so proud, so sophisticated, so filled up, puffed up. And so you look at me, and you say, oh, he's not going to eat, right? Well, we know better than that. They're not idols. There aren't any idols. Only the Lord made the heavens. We can eat anything we want. And so in chapter 8 or 9, what he does is he begins to say, oh, so, you know, you, you look at me and think I'm in bondage, and you're free. You're smart. And then he begins to talk about who he is. He says, listen, I'm an apostle. I have freedom. And so aid is sort of an extended rebuke. But the rebuke is built upon the last few verses of chapter 8. I'm, I'm messing it up, aren't I? So what I want to do is look at the last few chapters, verses of chapter 8. And I want you to see what's going on in those verses so that as we come into 9, we have a better sense. But then, <laughs> that was my original thought. And then I hit a, a phrase in, in these verses that once I hit the phrase... That's all we're going to talk about today. And those of you that are used to me know that that's often the case. I often get off on a tangent. And so I'm going to get off on a tangent today. But I think it's a very important tangent. Thank you, Doug. (laughs) Okay, so this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For if, verse 10, someone sees you who have knowledge, that's the Corinthians, We have knowledge. I mean, oh, please, these brains around Bloomington. I mean, gag me with a full 16-place setting. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. If you were the one that paid for them, thank you, but really. Okay. You guys have seen them. They're like this big in their brains, you know. And they have so much significance. In this community. All right, okay, all right. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, through your much vaunted, your most excellent, <laughs> your knowledge. You have to put into this that he's kind of ridiculing them, all right? And he says, for through your, <laughs> your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brothers for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And then he moves into, look, aren't I free? Aren't I apostle? In other words, they then begin to look down on him because he's allowing himself to be limited in what he does by his weaker brother. And he says, hey, 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 hey. I have every freedom, every dignity, every position you have. Don't look down on me. All right, now, what do you think? Out of that text I'm going to preach on. Well, okay, you know how they say that when you read the Bible, every time you read it, you get something new, right? You've all heard that. So I got something new reading this. I had never seen the words, 
the brother for whose sake Christ died before. Now you know I'd seen him and seen him and seen him and seen him and seen him. I don't even know how many hundreds of times I've, I've read them. But I'd never seen them before. And I got thinking about them. So bear with me. Now, now first of all, think about, again, I want to set up the whole scene in Corinth. And I want you to be convinced that it's just like your life. There's no difference between you and the Corinthians. So how do I have to do that? Well, I have to convince you that you have your idols, we have our idols, we have our civic religions, just like they did. So picture it. In the ancient world, you had a city named Corinth. It's just like Bloomington. It had brain, idol brains everywhere. They were very, 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 very proud of their knowledge. They thought that they were the supreme expression of mankind. They were educated. They had taste. They were aesthetes. And at the center of the community, as at the center of most communities, was a temple. Now, what is the Temple of Bloomington? You should be able to think about that. You should always know that the center of every community of people is a temple. We cannot help but worship. We always will worship. All right. So now go back into Corinth, and they had a temple at the center. And in this temple, sacrifices were made to the gods. Once the sacrifice was made, and what would happen is people would feast. Because once you've appeased the gods, then it's a happy time. That's why we have joyful hymns after we have our prayer of confession and assurance of pardon. And so they had sacrificed their animals. They'd appeased the gods with blood. So then they had times of joy. And in the times of joy, they ate the meat of the animals that were sacrificed. Now, in that temple at those feasts, everybody ate. As a matter of fact, to not eat in those temples was almost as if you were to burn an American flag. It was the center of the life of the community. It was today like drinking at a bar on Kirkwood. All right? It was like going to a basketball game in Assembly Hall. It was like uh, going, you know, if you're of a certain type of individual, it would be like going to the, the country club. You know, the clubhouse. Okay? It would be like, um, did I say going to a basketball game? And in that place were those who made no claim to be Christians and those who did make a claim to be Christians. And that's where the division came in the church because some who were Christians would go and eat in that place and some wouldn't. But the main people that were in there were the people who actually did pay obeisance, who actually did bow before the gods, who made a show of honoring the gods of that city. And so the division among the Christians was, well, look, what's going on in there anyhow? I mean, you shouldn't even have anything to do with that because those people are worshiping the gods and that food has been sacrificed, that meat has been sacrificed to the gods and we shouldn't have anything to do with it. And the others say, wait, 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 wait. They're not gods. All the the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. There is only one God. And so it's a, it's a difference of emphasis. These people are trying not to violate their conscience because they know that the people in their eating are honoring their gods. And they don't want to make it look as if they're honoring the gods too. And these people say, their gods aren't gods. You know, chill out. Take a chill pill. It's okay. You know, they're no threat to God. And so when we look at this, what we think is, well, there's nothing like that in our community. Because they believed in the gods. And nobody in this community believes in any gods. And that's what we always tell ourselves. And so the good thing about us is nothing is ever at stake with us. 
You know, we don't ever have to be worried about a, a, a mixed confession, you know. We, we, just, we just live our gracious lives. And everybody just gets drawn to Jesus Christ from a life that was pretty good before they came to Jesus. And there is no idolatry. I mean, come on, which one of you has confronted somebody about being idolatrous since last week? See, not one of you. I told you, there is no idolatry today. And so we look back on this conflict among the Corinthians. What a bunch of idiots. You know, there were no gods. We know there were no gods. Now human beings have evolved to the point where all human beings know there are. Well, there's some people that are weird down in, down in India. You know, and they're idolatrous. I was reading a, an article in the New Yorker this last week where they were talking about the wealth in, 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 down in the storehouses under the Hindu temples. And this one temple, so far, they have found $20 billion of diamonds and gold. And so there's a big fight over, apparently some people have been like stealing a little bit of it. You know, you could steal a tiny little bit of that and be quite wealthy in India, right? And so the question is, who makes the decision about who guards it and who's stealing it and how they're going to stop it? And there's this hilarious part in the article where the author explains that down in India, uh, the gods are viewed as minors under the law and have to have an advocate in court. And I have to tell you that I just found that just a little bit delightful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Hindu gods are minors and therefore must have a major who will take on the obligation of defending him. Why? Because he's impotent. He cannot do nothing. Right? And so we look at India and we think, what a bunch of stupids, you know? I mean, how dumb. Can't they see that? Isn't that embarrassing, you know, that their gods have to have an advocate? What do they call the person, Caleb, in the court for a child? I can't hear you. Huh? Casa? Oh, court-appointed special advocate. You could probably live pretty high on the hog being the Casa for the Hindu gods. And this is, this is the failure that Lewis, Chester, and all these men warn us about over and over again, which is the error of thinking that we are better than our ancestors, that they were stupid, that we're smart, that they were unevolved, and that we're evolved, that they were regressive, and that we're progressive. And it just bores me to tears. We think that they thought that the gods in the temple were really gods. But they didn't, people. They did not believe that. You go back and you read Greek philosophy, and there's a world weariness to it. They know they're not gods. It's simply civic piety. And let me ask you, do you think when the Israelites made a calf from the jewelry, do you think that they thought that calf was actually a god? Do you think they were that dumb? And so you look back on them and you say, well, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have been that stupid. I know that that, you know, that, that dog don't hunt. <laughs> you know, that calf don't crack the whip. Don't do thunder. Don't do lightning. That calf don't do nothing, right? How could they be so stupid as to think that that calf was a god? Well, they didn't. Idols always are what you interpose between yourself and the real God. And it's a way of mediating the tension between your conviction of sin and the holiness of God. And so you insert an idol, and then you do obeisance to the idol, and you never have to look at God. You make idols so that you don't have to face the God who is there. Nobody ever believes 
that that gold is living. They make the gold so that they can show their religious deeds. Do you understand this? And then their religious deeds to that keeps them from having to present themselves a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable. Is there a reasonable form of worship to the living God? You know what I believe? And, and I hate to say this, but my goodness, shouldn't I be helpful to you? Do you know what I believe is the God that is so obvious in Roman Catholicism is Mary. How can you not see that Mary is your mother that keeps you from having to go to your father? It's just like the most obvious thing in the world. Mary is the one that we go to so that we don't have to face the living God. She is his mother. She can be our advocate. Now, am I saying that it's never appropriate for Christians to go to other Christians and ask them to pray for them? No. I have nothing against asking you to pray for me and be my advocate with God. Do you understand that? As a matter of fact, a Roman Catholic priest friend of mine, a Jesuit, I was very close to him. He advised me when I talked to him about sins I was struggling with, I went to him and asked him. He said to me, ask little children to pray for you. So I'm not against having advocates. I am against putting someone in the position of the mediator between us and God who is not Jesus Christ. And if I ask a child to pray, I'm not going to ask a child to pray to Mary. I'm going to ask a child to pray to Jesus, to God, the Father. And so we're always putting together uh, uh, gods that we can that we can sacrifice to in, in the ways we sacrifice that are the source of our worship are, 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 are not the source. What is it? The, the, uh, the object, the object of our worship, right? We're always doing this. And so you go back into Corinth and you go into the temple and you sit down at a table and you eat meat sacrificed to idols and you look around and what you'll see is people every bit as sophisticated as you are. All of them know that it's a big show. Just like everybody in churches in America today knows it's a big show. (laughs) Come on. Civic religion of America is Christianity. All right? And so they were very sophisticated, very world-weary, very, 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 very much in love with meat. (laughs) And this was as good a way as any other way to get a bunch of meat and have a party. Right? And so that's what was going on there. So what goes on here? Where do we have our civic religion where we party? Well, listen, the bars. If you're a student, the bars are the place where you party. Am I right? Or frat houses or sororities, I don't, I don't know. But certainly the bars, right? I mean, it's, it's the ritual of being a college student. Why do you leave your parents if it isn't go to bars? Certainly not to learn. Study after study shows us that. And so what happens in a bar? Well, what happens in a bar is that the ritual that holds the community together is practice. And what is a ritual? It's sexual immorality. So the combination of alcohol and whatever other drugs you're doing and and bodies and lust, rebellious music... That's what Mick Jagger says. Rock and roll has always been sex and rebellion. That's all it is. (laughs) Okay? All of it comes together, and what happens is that we worship exactly what Corinth worshiped, which is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality and idolatry are just like this always all through history. Remember what it said about the Israelites when they made the golden calf? Remember? What it said was that they were basically having an orgy. You start worshiping a golden calf that you made with your own hands instead of the living God who is holy, and all of a sudden you're free to have an orgy. (laughs) Ding dong! Thank you. I heard that voice. (laughs) Let me try it again. Ding dong! 
<laughs> okay. Okay, now, in our community, we have bars, but some of us are too old to go to the bars. So what do we do? We go to the clubhouse, and we go to assembly hall. Okay? And that's where we have our idolatry. We have the naked cult prostitutes. That's the cheerleaders. We have the virile men. That's the athletes. And we have the doing obeisance. Do you know what obeisance is? It means bowing down. Some of you don't kneel when I ask you to or tell you to. And I'm not talking about those of you that have bad knees. That's fine. But some of you will not do it. But do you know there's not one cheerleader that will get onto the squad for the IU basketball team who won't kneel? Because there is no tolerance of rebellion when it comes to the God of Bloomington. You know what happens two-thirds of the way through the game? Every single game, I done seen it, right? Two-thirds of the way through the game, the big flag comes out, and the virile men carry the flag, all right? And they run around the perimeter, and and all of a sudden, all the people there start frothing at the mouth. It's true. It's, It's an ecstatic spirit that seizes Assembly Hall at that time. And then they go to the center with the flag and they begin to build a pyramid or a column or whatever you want to call it, whatever imagery you want to use, it goes up, (laughs) the flag. And then when it goes up, all the cult prostitutes who are almost naked go around and circle it and they get down on their knees like this and they go like this and they go up and down and up and down and up and down. Now, I ask you, is that idolatry? There's no question it is. That's idolatry. And do you think anybody there thinks that IU is a god? (laughs) So what gives? How can we call it idolatry when everybody there is ultra-sophisticated, highly educated, and has absolutely no thought at all that IU could get up and, you know, the strength to crack a peal of thunder. Let alone heal their child. Listen, people. I am not sophisticated. I'm just another stupid fool across history who's in the image of Adam. That's it. I have not invented anything. I have not had an original thought. And I have not committed any sin that hasn't been committed from the time that Adam himself sinned. And if you're a woman, the same is true of you. You do not love the women of your life more than the old guys, patriarchs, love their women. You have not evolved. You are not more progressed. You're just one more man and woman bearing the likeness of Adam. And you're an idol-making machine because you don't want to bow before the living God. That's it. Okay? That's it. So now you think about Bloomington, and you think about the places where we have our idolatry, right? And you think, okay, let's assume that today... We're divided as a church between those who do and don't think they can go to assembly hall. Okay? Some of us think we can go to assembly hall because we know that IU isn't a god. We know that what the women are doing is, you know, like a man who was the vice chancellor of the university I went to my first game with, and I'd never done any sports until that night. And I figured as I was going to be the pastor of this church, I guess I needed to go to, the, to a game. He invited me. It was four, four rows up at center. Okay, any of you hear me? <laughs> One of the NCAA champion team members sat on the other side of him. And all of a sudden, I see this. I see it. I have not been desensitized to it. Are you with me? And my hair is standing on, and I'm his new pastor. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I've just been let behind the walls of the temple. 
And I know what's going on here. And now what am I going to do? Because he pays me. I said, let's call him Bob. I said, Bob, do you see what's going on there? And he said to me, yeah, they, they get a little bit carried away now and then. Those were his exact, they get a little bit carried away now and then. Of course, he knew that I'd never seen it before, and so he could say now and then, which really was to lie. They get carried away every single game of every single season, winning or losing. (laughs) Two seasons ago, they did that when they had nothing to celebrate. (laughs) And so we got out in the parking lot, and I thought, you know... No sense being Tim Bailey if you don't have another go at it. And I looked at him and I said, Bob, did you see that? (laughs) You know, I didn't get any traction. He was the son of a reformed pastor. And so you look at that game and you think about this and you think, well, you know something, we all know that IU is not a God. We all know the limitations of the human mind. We all know that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. We all know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both wisdom and knowledge. We are not bothered. We are not intimidated. We are going to go in that place and take it for Christ. Right? Right? And that's why we're all at the basketball game, right? Because we're in there taking it for Christ. Right? This is how we think. Let's admit it. You would not believe what can be justified by an evangelical in the name of evangelism. Changing the actual text of scripture. Okay? Now, here's where the crunch comes. So again, it's civic religion. It's idolatry, just like we have idolatry. It has the sacrifices. It has the cult temple prostitutes. It has everything. It's just like us, right? And so we say we're in there because why? Because we're going to do evangelism. We're in there. And so you can just imagine the Corinthians saying, look, how are we ever going to be a witness if we're not in the temple having meals with the common people? Are you with me? It's just the most obvious explanation in the world. And we're evangelicals, so we know where to hang our hat. And so we say, look, we have to be in there in order to do evangelism. Didn't Jesus say, go into all the world? Praying the sinner's prayer. Or giving our testimony. Right? And so we're in there giving our testimony. And maybe some of them will pray the sinner's prayer. I mean, isn't that a legitimate reason to go in the temple and to eat meat? Isn't that a legitimate reason? And so we're all softened up and we think, well, you know, if it's evangelism, well, there you have it. You know? But then we ask them a question. We say, but really, I mean, are you in there for them or for yourself? And they say, well, I'm in there for them. After all, Jesus died for them. He died for them too. Now, now be honest with me. That is how every single one of you would speak. Every single one of you would say, well, Jesus died for them too. This isn't just like a little private party we Christians are supposed to have in our own private sanctuary. Are you with me? Jesus died for them. For through your knowledge... He who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Okay, you see where I'm headed now. Look, people. Jesus did not die for the people inside that temple of idolatry. He did not die for them. He did not die for them. Because if Jesus died for the people inside, then what Paul writes makes no sense. 
How can he make a distinction between your brother outside who you've placed a stumbling block in front of and what you're doing inside with all the pagans unless they're the ones that Jesus didn't die for and this brother who's seeing you and is scandalized by your actions is the one for whom Christ died. Do you see? That phrase makes no sense unless there are those for whom Christ died and those for whom Christ did not die. Come on. At this point, I get so frustrated if I'm allowed to be frustrated. Because I think, come on, people. You say you honor Scripture, show it to me. Get rid of your highly evolved sense of justice that requires you to lie about God. God, when he sent his son to this earth to die, loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. He loved the world so much, right? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And so here comes the son. The son is on the cross. The son of God, the lamb, the spotless lamb of God, is pouring his blood out on the cross to do what? To purchase a people. And so let me ask you the question. God's son is on the cross pouring out his blood. How effective is the work of the son? How effective is it? And many of you think it's completely impotent. Because the one thing that Jesus didn't do and couldn't do was to make you believe. And, and, and so here's, here's the gospel. I present it to you. Jesus has done everything he can, and now it's up to you. And I say, what kind of a God is this? You know what this God is? This God is an idol. It's another idol. Because you cannot stand the thought of God not choosing someone. And so you just run all around trying to avoid what the scriptures clearly say. It clearly says, the brother for whose sake Christ died. You can't have a brother for whose sake Christ died without having a, a friend that Jesus did not die for. And see, listen, remember how we tell you over and over and over again that postmodernism hates distinctions. And so the whole evangelical world is all bollocked up trying to avoid any distinctions. And that's why we all talk about Jesus died for everyone. In that temple are all those people for whom Christ died, and it's just up to us to get in there and to share the gospel with them so that they can do the one thing Jesus couldn't do, which is to believe. And then we read scripture, and what are we doing? It's like we're stoned. It's like the synapses of the neuroses or whatever it is have stopped firing. It's like we're completely drunk. I listen to us explain what the truth is about this. And it's like, does not follow. You know, can't mean that. And we're so busy trying to protect God from himself. And it just seems like such a stupid thing to do. What God needs man to protect him from himself? What kind of a God is that? It isn't a God, it's an idol. We just are constant idol-making factories. And so here's the God. He is the God who exists. He is the God who sent his son to die for specific individuals. And you sit there and you go, well, wait a second, no. I mean... Jesus says, come to me, all you who are... I say, of course, we are to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Did you hear me say anything about not proclaiming the gospel to the whole world? And you're going to say to me, well, you shouldn't proclaim it to those for whom Christ didn't die. Oh, yes, I should. Because the Bible tells me, go into all the world, to all men. And you say, well, it doesn't logically follow. And I say, when are you going to be done with your logic? When are you going to be done with your sense of justice, your sense of fairness, which is just the product of post-enlightenment political ideology? 
When are you going to reform your thinking in, in the character and form of the Bible? When are you going to stop being a scientist and begin to be a Christian? When are you going to start being a rationalist and begin to be a biblicist? When are you going to give up your stupid sense of fairness, which your mother taught you, and your mother was sweet, but she was wrong, and begin to have your sense of justice and fairness be defined by what Scripture says? And here's the truth. If God makes some vessels for wrath, it is God's glory to do it, not his prerogative. Everybody always talks to me about, well, I guess you have the right to tell your children what to do. And I always say, right, I don't have any rights to tell my children what to do. I have an obligation. I have a duty. I have a responsibility. It is not God's prerogative to make some for destruction. It is his character. God hates sin. And he has no duty to save one of us. He told Adam, the day that you sin, you will die. And the amazing thing is that I'm here to tell you about it. The amazing thing is that one of us will stand in the day of judgment under the blood of Jesus. And if we will begin to appreciate the work of Christ on the cross and stop trying to blur the distinctions, stop trying to act as if we're kinder than God, it's utterly repulsive. And that's the reason why you do not believe in the proclamation of the law of God as the beginning of evangelism. Even if you were in there sharing the gospel for the, to those for whom Christ died, you wouldn't be sharing the gospel. What you would be saying is, I know your life is already good, but if I could tell you a way that you could drive a pink Cadillac, would you be interested in how to do it? Some of you don't remember Amway. <laughs> and that's, that's the gospel proclamation of evangelicals today. You know, if I could tell you a way that you could have it even better than you and this American already have it with Apple. Long before China ever got any of the iPhones. And that's God. And that's why we need God, because it can be a little bit better. Come on, guys. When God called you to himself, you were in a pit of wickedness. Every thought of your mind was corrupt. There was no good in you. You were made in the likeness of your father Adam, women and men. And in his infinite mercy, he reached down and plucked us, just like a baby cat plucks her kittens. How active are those kittens? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And once we get our mind and heart, our being around the miracle of salvation, the miracle of being one of those for whom Christ died, we will stop trying to cover over the distinction between the world and the church. And then we'll be different. And then people will look at us and they'll be scared. They'll be fearful. They'll come in. They'll never think of coming to this table because they'll know this table is for holy. It's holy things for holy people. They'll hear us say, listen, some who've profaned this table have gotten sick and died. And they'll respect us and they'll hate us. Right? And all of a sudden, biblical Christianity is born. And civic American religion is dead. And all of a sudden, we go out and we say to the world, come to Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. 
take his yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And they'll look at you and they'll say, rest? I don't need no rest. I done be rested up fine. And you say, oh, no, you're not rested up fine. The reason you want to kill yourself is that you know that you have destroyed your conscience. You know that your adultery against your wife is a sin that stinks to high heaven. You know that God will judge you soon. Don't you dare patronize me with talk of being rested. You are an unceasing, churning kettle of wickedness. And Jesus said he came for the sinners. And so look at your wickedness. Look at mine. Here is how he found me. And then you give them, instead of giving them a little dose of a dollop of marmalade, what I referred in the first service to a bunch of bosomy men and women trying to out-bosom everybody else, which is, I think, what evangelical evangelism is today. You know, everybody has a heaving bosom. Instead, you will look them in the face and you will say, I defy you to say that God has not shown you your wickedness. You know I speak truth. And all of a sudden, what happens? True Christianity is reborn. Because all of a sudden, instead of the law being that twisted sister we hide in the attic, under some rubric, and that varies, Good reform people can spit on dispensationalists and still hide the, the twisted sister in the attic <laughs> with all talk of grace. Okay, here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is dispensationalists have always made a, a, a conflict between the God in the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And so the twisted sister is the God of the Old Testament, and then Jesus came along and he's love. Well, reform people do the same thing, but, it, but they're against dispensationalists generally, although there are reform dispensationalists. We have some in our midst. But reform people just talk all about grace. And then they say that in Bloomington, what you need to do is you need to, to when in Bloomington, do as Bloomington does. And so our ministry is going to be all about art. That's what a new church being planted right now explained to another church that was going to support them financially. They said, well, you know, in Bloomington, you have to do what Bloomington does. And Bloomington's about art. So we're going to be about art. And so the grace of art, you know. In other words, every day in every way, the world is getting better and better. And grace is the way that you talk about that. And the world needs grace. And of course, that's all true. But who knows they need grace if they have not been convicted of sin? Who needs grace if they don't know the holiness of God? If we're all tied up trying to convince ourselves and other people that God would not really choose not to save some, okay, are you with me? then God also would not choose to save some. In other words, once you remove God's choice, then it's all about us. And isn't that perfect for a town that has a bunch of seven-foot-tall brains or four-foot-tall brains? It's all about us. But once we see that God is high and lifted up and that his train fills the temple, And that all the angels cry, holy. And you look at yourself. I defy you. You go into your bathroom tonight. You strip off your clothes. Get a full-length mirror. And tell me that you like yourself. And you say, well, it's just the flab I don't like. The sag I don't like. The stretch marks. I say, no, you look in that mirror. I defy you. You don't like yourself. And why? The reason is because God, in his kindness, has put inside you the witness of the Holy Spirit that shows you in a mirror, let alone the word of God, that you have no hope. And then you see that and you go, Whoa! Woe is me! I'm undone! There's no hope for me! What am I going to do? And then you're Christian in Pilgrim's Progress where all of a sudden you catch just this gleam of hope. 
You don't understand what it is at this point. You have almost no idea what that hope is. But you remember something about the one who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I'm humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. And there's this little dude over here, and he's sitting there at the table eating the meat in the temple. And he says, well, you know something? Um, Do you believe that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And you know what you're going to do at that point? You're going to take your hands, you're going to cover your ears, and you're going to say, life, life, and you're going to run. Where? To the one who said, come to me. You're not going to be satisfied with baptism. You will be baptized. You're not going to be satisfied with being a church member. You will be a church member. You're not going to be satisfied with the sinner's prayer. Oh, you will pray. And you will be a sinner praying. But you'll have no confusion that the only way to escape the judgment and damnation of God is to flee to his son. And it will be your faith that he died for you. (laughs) Are you ready? And because he died for you, his death will be what? What's the word? Efficacious. Effective. Potent. He won't do it halfway. He won't say, here I am. Just run a little bit farther. And then my arms reaching out. And if you can just, you know, like a train, you know, you you got thrown off the train and it's starting up. and (laughs) And then finally you grab the rung on the, I don't know what we call it, but you know, there's little that comes off the side of the train, you know, that you climb up to the, Handbrake, you know. (laughs) No, no, Jesus has done it all. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. He died for whom? You can't go into that temple and say to everybody there, Jesus died for you and 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 and honor this text because it says, if you go in that temple and by your knowledge, you place a stumbling block in front of another Christian, here's what you're doing. Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother, and that means the Christian, for whose sake Christ died. And so right away, you just have to give up. And just say, there are those for whom Christ died, and those for whom Christ died, his death will be unbelievably potent and efficacious. Now listen. Here's the beauty. The beauty is that makes you free to do evangelism. It never ever causes us to not do evangelism because then we're absolutely confident that Jesus Christ has died for a people and that they are waiting for us to do our job, which is come to them and proclaim the good news, that Jesus commands them to come to him. And you say, well, wait, that can't be possible. If he didn't die for him, you can't command them to come. And I say, come on. Here you are all wrapped up in your own sense of what is reasonable. If the Bible says for us to go into all the world... And the Bible says that when we go into all the world, there will be those for whose sake Christ died, who will respond in repentance and faith. Then you're to do them both. And you're supposed to watch the way you live, the way you think, the way you pray, and the way you preach, the way you share the gospel. And so you go to everyone. Because why? Because all over the world, from every tribe, every people, men and women, slave and free, are those for whom Christ died. And if he died for them... His death will be efficacious. It's potent. And so you can just be an idiot. You can take the most forlorn, mongrelish, wicked, despicable human being on the face of the earth. And you can call him to come to Jesus. And if Christ died for him, bing bong. And it won't be because you do art. It won't be because you talk to him about how you used to work on the railroad. It won't be because you tell her that you have children too. 
It will be because that man, that woman, that child, Christ died for him. While he was a sinner, while he was dead in his trespasses and sins. Listen, don't try to be nicer than God. God is God. And he has no need for you and me to defend him. Remember what Spurgeon said about Scripture. He said, defend Scripture? I'd rather defend a roaring lion. The Bible does not need you to explain how it doesn't really mean what it says. There are those for whom Christ died. Are you with me? And there are those for whom Christ did not die. And in heaven, it will be clear. And here, you don't know. So don't go around saying, well, Christ didn't die for you. You have no idea because the thief in the last minute of his life said, Lord, remember me when you come into paradise. And Jesus said, this day you shall be with me. When you come into your kingdom, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Our lack of knowledge is awesome. And by that I mean it's huge, and by that I mean it's wonderful. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. What a wonderful place to lodge our plausible deniability. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. I want to close with a couple of things. First, I want to read from Romans. And this is, by the way, the first sermon I have ever preached on predestination in my life. The first. But, you know, I hit that phrase and I thought, you know, you're going to get it. Because it's there. And it's there in such a divine way. It's just this parenthetical statement in the middle of a whole other thing. But you have to see it. And here's what Romans says. Romans says, and you know, we use this first verse all the time. But, 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 but go with it. Don't just stop with the candy. Would you please? Haven't any of you realized that there's a time for candy and a time to leave it behind? You know, don't you ever get sick of just sugar? When I was a child, I used to buy junior mints constantly. But at some point, all right. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we all have that memorized, right? But here's what comes next. For those whom he foreknew. Why do people never, why do they never quote this? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be, that's Jesus, the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? You see, the active agent in every one of those things is God. It's not us. Nowhere do I show up. Did you hear it? He, 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 he. And then chapter 9, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And so he opens up this thing that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. And then he says, what shall we say then? As if he were to say, Okay, I know all of you want to say to me, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So he's quoting. So this is a double whammy principle of scripture interpretation. It's the only original thing I've ever come up with in my life, all right? But it's where you, in the New Testament, have the Holy Spirit saying to you what the Old Testament means. And so, no, no, no confusion here. So in the Old Testament, it says, he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who chooses, or the man who believes. I'm adding them. But he says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now listen, you have to know the Old Testament to know the significance of that. In the Old Testament it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says it over and over again, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so it's assuming you know that it says in the Old Testament, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it says here, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. The Lord, Scripture said to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raise you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy, he, on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? (laughs) Which is exactly what we'd say. Well, then no man's responsible because it's God. And he says, you'll say that to me. And then he says this, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Some of you never had the privilege of having a father. And so some of you had a mother like my mother, where I would say to her, why, mom? mud, and she would say, because I said so, that's why. (laughs) On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, this is for you, Lizzie, why did you make me like this, will it? Yeah, you've done pottery, and you've chosen to make some things more beautiful than others. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Profane use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, do you see what I said about how it's in his very nature to condemn wickedness? And it says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, and we rewrite that, what if God, although willing to save some and show his great tender mercy and love, but what it says is, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, that's the one we don't have to argue. And then we come to the one we do have to argue, endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. In other words, people, there is absolutely no way God can receive glory through his condemnation, damnation, judgment, and wrath and holiness unless we can see that against the backdrop of his loving mercy. And so you, God has shown mercy to you so that there is backdrop to the masses which will go to hell. And that's the only good you are. If anybody ever asks you, what are you good for? What you say to them is, because unless I'm there showing the mercy of God, there will be no way to see his judgment and wrath. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. He prepared beforehand. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, a, 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 is that you? Huh? Huh? Think of your past. Is that you? He will call those who were not his people. Is that you? Tell me. Is it a fresh memory? Do you remember the stench of the hole? He says, I will call those who were not my people, my people. (laughs) Bro. And her who was not my beloved... Beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. I don't think we think enough about the act of sex. We think we think about it too much. I don't think we think about it enough. 
That child that's about to be given birth to because of the will of the father, is that child the one that spurs his father on to do his deed of insemination? It's a perfect image. The Father Almighty has many sons. (laughs) And where are those sons before they prayed the sinner's prayer? They're in the loins of the Father. And he sent his son, and his son's blood purchased us. And we were not even a thought in our Father's mind. We weren't even born. And the blood of Christ completed the purchase of our redemption. And that's why Jesus said what? Jesus said what? It is finished. All right, put it up, please. So I'm going to leave you with a conundrum. 400 years ago, this was written. The father imposed his wrath due unto, and the son underwent punishment for either. In other words, the father let out his wrath, and the son took the punishment of the father's wrath, either for the sins, all the sins of all men, or for all the sins of some men, or for some of the sins of all men. Those are your three choices. Are you with me? Okay. In which case, it may be said that if the last be true, now go back, some of the sins of all men, if the last one is true, go go forward, all men have some sins left to answer for, and so none are saved. So it can't be that. If the second be true, and that's what? All the sins of some men, all right, are you with me? Then Christ, in their stead, suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the whole world. And this is the truth. But if the first be the case, go back, thank you, all the sins of all men, and that's what, what? That's what every evangelical believes. All the sins of all men. If that's who Christ died for, why are not all men free from the punishment that's due unto their sins? Why isn't everybody saved? If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, why isn't everybody saved? Okay, keep going. You answer because of unbelief, right? Great evangelical response. Well, they just don't believe. Okay, so he's got your number. And he says, you answer because of unbelief. And then I ask, is this unbelief a sin or isn't it? He says, come to me, come to me, right? Is that a sin or not if you don't come when he says to come? That unbelief, right? If it is a sin, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it, or he did not. If he did suffer the punishment, even for that sin of unbelief, then why does that have to hinder them more than any of their other sins for which he died? And if he did not pay the penalty for that sin of unbelief, then he didn't die for all their sins. Listen, people, when you begin to defend God from himself, from his word, from his character, it's a never-ending proposition. And the only thing you'll be successful in doing is removing the scandal from one place over to the next. You'll never get done with trying to protect God. And so what I call you to do today is to worship the God who reveals himself in the word of God. Have done with all your caviling all your protests, all your vaunted sense of justice and fairness, which Washington, D.C. taught you in every State of the Union message. Your union. Oh, yeah, the union. Union can tell us what's fair. Oh, yeah. Be done with it. God soon will judge you. And you will be judged by his perfect, justice. And you will not get in front of him and say, guilty with an explanation, your honor. And you will not argue with him. And you are either a believer in Jesus Christ and a member of his church eating at this table marked by the sign of the covenant of baptism, or you will have no hope 
eternally. And he will say, be gone. And people will be able to see your eternal torment because there will be some. It will be a small number, but there will be some who will live in the presence of the Lord. And their purpose will be to show your torment and the character of God which reduced you to torment throughout all eternity. And those things are not a scandal. This is God. And once you submit to this truth, it is revealed again and again and again and again and again in Scripture. Once you submit to this truth, then Scripture will explode and the glory of God will explode in you. Because you'll finally be worshiping the God who exists rather than the God that you've made with your own mental capacity and your own sense of justice and fairness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are just and that the day will soon come when every deed of ours, every idle word even, will be brought into the light. Father, we tremble at the thought of even what we have done in the past 24 hours, let alone what we will do tomorrow, let alone what we think right now, let alone the burden of our lives. And so we come to this table to eat the body of our Lord and to drink his blood by faith, saying that there is no hope for us except in the shed blood of your Son who purchased our redemption. So now, Father, feed us, heal us, comfort us, unite us as those for whom Christ died, and keep us from being a stumbling block and thereby harming our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.